Please be seated. And as you take your seats, uh, turn in the, your Bibles to the book of Titus, Titus chapter 1, and we'll today uh, work through verses 5 through 9. Titus 1, 5 through 9 is our word for today. Um, many times you might use the, ins- the bulletin inside of your, uh, or you might use the outline of this inside of your bulletin. You don't need that today. I changed, I changed all of it. So, <laughs> but you might see it again next week. <laughs> Anyways, I had so much, I had so much that I split it up into two weeks. And so uh, get a fresh sheet of paper or that blank sheet in your bulletin and, and, and use that to take notes on instead uh, today. Um, I didn't miss being with you last week. And we had a wonderful vacation away and a time to go worship at another church. And, and uh, down there was one of our missionaries, Preston Clarkson, was uh, preaching. And it was a joy to be worshiping together with him and to see him. And he sends his greetings. Titus 1, 5 through 9. Please stand for the reading of God's word. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is God's word. May I add his blessing to the reading of it. You may be seated. Well, we did have a a joyful vacation. We went to uh, Williamsburg, and we spent uh, a week in Williamsburg. We did some RV camping, actually we were down there, but it gave us a chance to go see all the things that are around there, some more amusement and recreation oriented, and some other things more educational and learning. One of the educational places we went to was Yorktown, and um, as you know, you know, the, this, this turning battle in the American Revolution and the, the, the victory of the Continental Army against the, the, the mighty British um, military that was, that was stationed there. Um, as, as I was there, it was a reminder to me of how while the Declaration of Independence, which we celebrated the 4th of July this last week, while the Declaration established our nation, there was so much work to be done after that. And as you know the story, the Continental Army, by the time we get to 1781, uh, had not seen a lot of great, had not seen a lot of success, Uh, but George Washington secretly moved his troops uh, down towards Virginia because he knew that the British military were in a vulnerable spot. The French had additionally come in to, to, to assist in the war, and he knew that he could win a critical battle, and, and that was something that he did. Uh, the British surrendered, and it was something that they never recovered from that loss. It was, uh, you know, that war for independence was, was soon over after that. You know, and, and just 
going over the story again, being there, was the reminder of the, the model that George Washington was. You know, he was called, what, first in war, first in peace, first in the hearts of his countrymen. And a lot of that is because he set the standard for leadership for every president who's come after him. You know, he refused to become king when he could have. He voluntarily stepped aside from the presidency and peacefully handed power over to his successor, John Adams. You know, such a leader that even today, the United States Senate reads Washington's farewell address every year, reads it out loud. He's the model for future presidents. He's a model for leadership, for uh, political leadership inside of our, our nation. We had, a, we had a delicate nation in 1776, but men like Washington, like Jefferson, Adams, Hamilton, Madison, others helped to get the start that we needed, and others have followed and continued on in their work. They showed the value of leadership. You know, without that leadership, there's no United States of America as we understand it today. And so while there are leadership standards that, that all have, as we look at the nation there, you know, we know leadership standards are especially important inside of the church. And so it's interesting as we look at this letter of Titus that's written for a clear reason, we see where it stands. Now, if you look back at verse 5, you see why this letter was re- written. It was written so that this um, pastor, Titus, would complete the work of ministry on the island of Crete. He and the Apostle Paul, they had started uh, churches um, on this island. And while the Apostle Paul was called away, called to go somewhere else, Titus needed to stay there and to keep things moving. This church needed to become self-sustainable. They needed to get to a point they didn't need outside help to keep their ministry moving along. Now, he had a couple things working against him in this. First of all, it was a new church. And new churches are always vulnerable and fragile. They didn't have long-term stability. They were still learning how to interact with one another. But second, he was trying to start a church in a highly immoral nation. If you jump down to verse 12, we see how bad the surrounding culture was. Lying deceit was practically celebrated as a virtue in Crete. Cruelty was her favorite sport. And the lazier, more gluttonous a person was, the more respect they received. Right there in the middle of that context, that's where God establishes his church. A church to witness the truth. A church to be a light in this dark place. And the people in that church, they were going to have different values. and They were going to have different habits than the culture around them. What kind of people were they going to be? Well, Titus 2, 1 through 14 describes it. But if we're to summarize Titus 2, 11 through 14, two things stand out. That you have a people with godly aspirations and people who are committed to good works. Godly aspirations to go after God and to love him and obey him and walk with him. And then to do good works in their community and for their neighbor and for one another. There's a group who wanted to be different than what the culture offered around them. Where would they find godliness? Where would they find goodness in a place like Crete? That was supposed to be inside of the church of Christ. As we look around us in our own world, you might have that same yearning as well. If you're here, I believe it's because you have a desire to please God. You want to hold different values than the world holds. You see the values of the world. You see where, what they are and where they result. Not in love and joy and in purpose, but filled with unrighteousness. A world that's driven by sensuality. A world that's driven by the passions of the flesh. 
a demand to, be, to, to recognize personal rights without recognizing the call to love and to serve others. It's selfish. It's uncaring. And the world will punish all those who get in the way. When God works in a person's life, values begin to shape and to shift, not wanting what the world wants. People look elsewhere. Where do you find values that matter? Where do you find values that please God? And, and those are supposed to be inside of the church of Christ. That's what Titus was working for. It's what we're working for. Now, so how do we see something like that develop in a community? How do we build a church that makes a difference in the lives of people? How do we build a church that helps people live for God? And some people would say, well, we're just inherently good, and what we need to do is just let people unleash that inner good, help them feel good about themselves, do a lot of self-affirmation. Some that fails to see the consequences of sin, how sin keeps people from God. Others might say, we just need the right rules in place. If we can get the right rules in place, the right structure, if we can just enforce them right, then just people will do the right thing. Again, it fails to see the power of human sin. Others would say the church will grow if we can just put together entertaining services with highly charismatic speakers in front of others. They think the way to build a church is through the use of celebrity and fame to, to draw people to Jesus. If we have a concert, then people will come. But when Titus is challenged with building a church, how to build a godly community, what's the first thing that he's told needs to be done? What Paul says here in this letter is to establish leadership. Verse 5 says his first step is to appoint elders in the church. Leadership is essential to any godly community. You know, God gives godly leadership to grow a godly people. It may not always be sleek and entertaining. It may not always seem to work super fast. It may seem unimpressive in the world's eyes, but this is God's way and it's effective for God's purposes. That's because our leaders are the ones who carry a moral vision. They carry a moral vision, and what leaders do is they pass on a moral vision to the people they lead. For whatever guidance and direction and management that a leader may give, we look to our leaders ultimately for spiritual and moral vision. What is good? What matters? What should we be doing, and why should we be doing it? Well, we can talk about business leaders, head of a home, political leaders, you know, all leaders provide some level of spiritual and moral vision. You know, the question we'd have for any of those other leaders is, where's your ground? Where's your ground for leadership? Is it grounded in what is good in God's eyes? Leaders provide not just policies and practices, but an example to follow. And it's especially important for the church. It's no more evident than if we uh, take just even a quick look through Israel's history in the Old Testament. When Israel in the Old Testament, when their leaders were, were godly, the people tended to be more godly. When they were ungodly, the people were led into all kinds of immoral practices. I think a good example of this comes in the book of Judges. If I was just take one paragraph, which describes it so well, it's in Judges chapter 2, starting verse 16. Judges 2.16 just gives us a pattern, and it's repeated over and over in the life of this nation. It says, The Lord raised up judges who saved Israel of the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. 
Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. Right? Good leaders. Good leadership. Godly leadership. He saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of their judge. The Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because my people will transgress my covenant, that I have commanded their fathers not to obey my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when they died, nor attest Israel by them whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So it left... Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. So, but we see this pattern. Godly leader comes up, they follow, they see this success in following God and, and in seeking him, and then he leads. There's a vacuum of leadership going in other ways, going against God until another one comes up, leading him in a godly direction. It's just a pattern that's repeated. The leaders provided, these judges provided a moral and spiritual vision that the others followed. And it's, it's still that way. Leadership still functions that way. Some advice I recently got was don't work for someone you don't want to be like. Or that. Don't work for someone you don't want to be like. It's really true in the church of Jesus Christ. You don't sit under someone you don't want the spiritual moral life like. So what kind of qualities do we need inside of our church leaders? And, and that's what these verses are about. And we're going to focus more on the qualities Next week, it's really two sermons, because what I want to focus on today is, what's the importance of elders? What's the importance of this role? And, and, and what are some, some important things that we need to see about their work and, and, and who they are? But we see that character matters, lifestyle matters, convictions matter. Qualified leader is going to have those things uh, with the standards of the Bible. You know, if we want uh, to grow as godly people, we need godly leaders, it's not programs that create godly people. There's not godly leaders. State education systems cannot create a good people if it's separated from God and the family. Neither will big events. Programs are okay and events are okay, but they don't create godly people. That's why, why as parents, we remember we can't just bring our kids to church or, or bring them to Christian school and think they will love God and follow God. It, it's something that we want to demonstrate as modeling in the, in, in the home. If we live godlessly in the home, it probably will be no surprise that our children will believe that they have no need of God in their lives. Example matters. Leadership matters. If you think about Jesus' ministry, now how did he model most of his three years of ministry? Well, he trained his 12 disciples, his 12 apostles. He walked with them. He talked with them. He spent most of his time with them. He built up them in character, in knowledge, in convictions. He impacted their whole lives. Raising leaders mattered to Jesus. He spent time with them to do it. He was a leader to them, to know them. In a lot of ways, it was a real, really relatively unimpressive plan. When he died, he hardly had anyone following him. Even after the resurrection, there were not many followers. The people who wanted Jesus dead probably breathed a sigh of relief, thinking that the movement was dead also. But what happened? Those few leaders told a few more, and, and they trained others so that today we see a church that is spread over the entire world. The spread of the church is not only a miracle of God's work, but is an affirmation that personal involvement in the lives of others is God's way of growing his church. And so Titus' instructions here are to point elders and appoint leaders inside of the church. 
So what is an elder? An elder is an officer in the church, an ordained leader inside the church. They may be pastors. Pastors are, are, are pastors like myself, like Pastor Doug, like Pastor Sam, Pastor Skip, and, and soon, Lord willing, Pastor Bob, right? We are, are all elders. Um, we call it teaching elders. But there are also ruling elders in the church, men who are not pastors. But they have the same role of leading the church, just with dif- different functions, and so when the church was first started, we know before there was elders, there was apostles. Apostles lived with Jesus. Apostles heard Jesus speak. They, they saw him resurrected from the dead. The apostle Paul was, was one of them. But the apostles wouldn't continue. They were, were temporary for the church. They'd set that doctrinal foundation for it, and then they would pass that leadership off to elders, local elders in their, these congregations. In Acts 14.23, Acts 14.23, we see elders mentioned because the apostles traveled throughout the lands and started churches that left behind elders to lead the church. Acts 14.23 says, When they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. It was not an apostolic succession down through the ages, but God has moved in leadership from apostles to elders. So what does that leadership look like? Some of the things we see inside of Titus one, five through nine, is we see that the church needs multiple elders, not just one. Those he says to appoint elders, not just a single elder. The church needs mutual ministry. The church needs accountability of many elders, not just a single bishop running things. Often churches keep looking to celebrity-like people with the hope of starting a great movement in the church. Some groups even sell expensive programs to attract people in by uh, building highly um, exciting and entertaining experiences. Well, here's where history continues to show that, that celebrity uh, pastors will not build a godly people. I mean, sometimes there is a growth that happens there, but oftentimes that movement fails to continue after that person leaves. Oftentimes a celebrity pastor will follow under the burden and the pride of his own leadership. Oftentimes, churches will compromise with the truth in order to to, to gain new people under that celebrity pastor. Here's why I think that is, is that that godliness grows in community. It doesn't grow by being isolated fans of a celebrity-like person. Celebrity doesn't unite. Community unites. That's where we find accountability and where we find hope. But God's plan is a lot more ordinary than that celebrity, isn't it? But it works. It's, it's God's powerful work. It's God's call to his church. Godliness is a grassroots work. It, it starts in the family. It starts in these personal relationships. No one pastor can do it. He may be able to draw a crowd. He may be able to inspire a movement. But he will not be able to do the things that God's people need in order to grow. You know, man, one man cannot take the place of a community that has good leadership. It's the same thing with your family. The character of your family will be guided by the kind of community you build in your family and the kind of community you build around your family. It's not just the message that you state, but it's by building a godly and a loving community around you. We might ask, how many elders does a church need that needs multiple ones? Well, we know more than one. I mean, it's going to depend on the church outside of that. But remember that a church isn't just trying to fill positions. The role of the church is identify, equip, ordain, send out uh, leaders, and then they lead the church. It raises up leaders and it puts them where they are needed. So there should be multiple elders. That's one observation. And, and here's a second observation from it, that elders should be appointed from the local body. 
Elders are, are local. You know, notice Titus's instruction here. Appoint elders in every town. You know, he's looking for those who demonstrate spiritual maturity um, in the church there and to raise them up and, and to appoint them as elders inside of this church. You know, something that's important when it comes to the local leadership of, of a church being from elders. I mean, local leaders care. You know, they're invested in the community. This is their home and life. They're not temporary people trying to move up the ladder to bigger and more important positions. Their elders are invested in the, in, the, in the community. They're invested in the life of that congregation. Um, local leaders relate. You know, elders do not sit in ivory towers for spiritual elite people. You know, many elders do normal jobs, normal families, and they know that the same trials that we all go through. Third thing we see is that, well, is that we always want to be training up leaders. That's why it's local. Eldership is a mark of a successful ministry of the church and the lives of leaders. It means that people's lives are being changed. It means they've matured in Christ, that they've grown and are able to provide leadership to others. Local leadership also better allows us to assess the character of church leaders in the ordinary course of life. I mean, how do we know if a person is qualified if we don't see them in the ordinary context of family or community, in the blessings of life as well as in the trials and the difficulties of life? I mean, here's the thing. The God wants us to be involved in one another's lives. I mean, that's what the, the life of the church is all about. It's caring, relating, speaking, encouraging, challenging, rebuking, training, and it's knowing. You know, I, and, and as I just reflect through this and, and our own elders, I'm just so thankful for the service of our elders. They're local. They, they know you. They care for you. They pray for you. Intercession means we pray for all of our congregation members. There's a commitment to prayer. Into knowing one another, into knowing what's going on. So we see leadership, it's local, it's congregational, as well as it's multiple. Um, a third observation that we can make about elders is that they are men. There's a recognition of the importance of male leadership inside of the church. You can look down at verse 6. It says, an elder must be the husband of one wife. It's something that only a male can do, at least until recent history, but... But, you know, we recognize that this is something that, that is something that, that men are, are called to do, males. The nouns are masculine inside of the passage, and we never see any officers of the church as being female. And so the plainest and simplest understanding of eldership is this an office that, that only men serve in. Besides verse 6 here, other parts of the Bible affirm this as well. First Timothy chapter 3 has the same qualifications. First Timothy 2 says the women of the church should not teach or have authority over men. The primary authority of the church to be exercised by, by men. And as the Bible's inspired word of God, we believe that it's an instruction that comes to us from God. From the beginning of the Bible, God created man and, and gave him the responsibility to lead. He put Adam in the garden and he instructed him to work it and keep it. He commanded him not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he gave Eve to be a helper in that work. Within the family, we see God giving the role of headship to the, to the man. And within the church, we see God giving the role of leadership to men. When men do well and they fulfill their roles in the home, in the family, then those families thrive. I mean, the statistics of absentee fathers is devastating inside of our nation, inside of our world. It's the same in society as is in the church. A society needs men to take their roles as God has designated it isn't because men are necessarily smarter or necessarily more capable. 
I mean, it is by the prerogative of God and by his design. Scripture doesn't say that men are any more valuable to God or to the church. We always have to remember that, that role does not communicate value. I mean, role does not communicate value. I mean, it's important because uh, some thinks that, that women will be treated as second-class people because they're less valuable, and that should never happen. That's because in God's economy, he does not state the value of a person is on the basis of their position. And we shouldn't value a person on the basis of their position either, but in the fact they're in the image of God, precious creations, in the image of God, everyone, male and female. God values women as his image bearers. Men and women are both in the image of God with equal value, and yet God selects men to serve as his officers. And so our conscience is, is grounded on the word of God. Our consciences are bound to obey what God has commanded. So if God directs the elders of the church to be male, then we don't have that right to change it. Does it mean that it's a, a popular matter in society or even in the church? Maybe it's not popular with you. I don't know. But, but if the Bible's plain on it, then it's something we need to be obedient in it. What happens in many churches, they try to adjust for modern times to say maybe we should have women elders, women preachers, they say that it's old-fashioned and out of the times to have only men as elders. They say that, that people, uh, you know, back when the Bible was written, they didn't appreciate women. They didn't understand their capabilities and that, and that we're more enlightened and, and we should adjust. Not only does this have a certain pride in our view towards history in the past and, and towards those who've been before, but it also fails to understand what the Scriptures teach. Many churches and denominations have done what they can to accommodate changes like that. Instead of taking what the plain meaning of the scripture is, they try to find new ways to interpret it and accommodate female elders in that case. And then what happens? What happens? And it happens over and over and over again. The church starts to go wrong in all kinds of other moral areas. Because if we can accommodate our culture inside of this area... Well, maybe we should accommodate the culture in that area, or a third area, or fourth one down the line. It starts with accommodation here, but it works all the way down into other areas, and especially we see in moral and sexual perversions, in ordaining and accepting those things. It's because both, and that way of thinking, will adjust the Bible to say what is most culturally appropriate. That's not what we do with the Bible. We don't tell the Bible what it should say. No, we let the Bible tell us what we should do, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it's countercultural at times. I mean, if, would God really be God if all he ever did was to tell us what, that we're doing okay, no matter what we're doing? And sadly, once the moral standards are changed, the churches start to die. Light grows dim. My big point here is not just about ordination or men or women or anything like that, but it's about the way we read the Bible. It's important to take it at its plain meaning. It's plain meaning what is present. Otherwise, we make all kinds of ways to excuse our own sinful behavior. And here's the thing. When God gives responsibility to us, we take it. Men are called to grow up and to step up for their families, for their nations, and for the church. Not all men will be elders. Women are not called to be elders, but we should all work to grow that we become men and women who take responsibility for ourselves and we take the responsibility for the well-being of others, to build them up in Christ. We always remember that leadership isn't a place for a power trip, but it's a, a place of humble service and honor to God. It's not a position of privilege. It's a position of service. 
We lead so that others do well. All of it following Jesus, who said this in Mark 10, 42 and 40 through 45. Mark 10, 42 through 45, he says this. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave to all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, give his life as a ransom for many. We're thankful for the, the, the heart of our leaders here because there is a desire to serve. Not of position, not of place, not of power, but to serve. And to serve well that you would do well spiritually. Well, the fourth observation we want to make about elders is how important they are. There are at least three different terms that are used to describe elders. And each one shows a, diff, a different dimension, different nuance. Notice in verse 5. If you look down Titus 1.5, it calls the church leaders elders, right? The, the Greek word here is presbyteros, presbyteros. That's what we get the word Presbyterian from, you know, meaning there are churches described in part by the type of government that we have, the types of relationships we have, the, the way that we govern ourselves. And, and, and that's important. You know, maybe that's why I take two weeks to do four verses here. You know, I, I, I tend to think it's important. But when we call them elders, we recognize that they are examples of moral character. That's what really the rest of the passage is about, right? I'm just going to touch on it right now. But elders are examples of moral character. They show what godly character looks like. They show what spiritual maturity is. An example of how to live, how to approach God, providing wise biblical counsel for pleasing God. Jesus said that a student would be like his teacher. So then in Luke 10, 35, a student would be like his teacher. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul prioritizes passing down faith from person to person. He says, the things you've heard me say in the many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will be able to instruct others. Example of moral character. It's because we become like the people we spend time with. It's why we need time with spiritually mature people. We need encouragement. We want others to lead the way in the way that we want to go. Our, I mean, as we look forward to this fall and, and the importance of our care groups, just to stress it is so important. That's why we want elders. And it, most of our care groups are led by elders. And that's why they want to lead and participate with it because they want to, you know, because they're, they're called by God to serve as that leader in, in, in seeking out God and in knowing him. That's why elders need to be spiritually mature. You see that they need to be men of character. They need to be good with their families. They need to, to know what they believe so they can teach it. Verse 9 really jumps out to me. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy word is taught so he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. I mean, the church needs men who know the word of God. That's why, especially speaking to our young men here, our young women, all of us, we need to know the word of God. We, we're people of the book. We need people who start now, who start reading the Bible and, and, and read it in a way they can communicate it. How will we be able to help others if we don't know what's in the book? The best advice that I got when I was in college was to read the Bible from cover to cover. I, I mean, I wanted to help people grow spiritually. And, and I knew the only way I could do it is if I knew this book I didn't know it, I wasn't going to be able to help him the way I needed to. It isn't hard to read the whole Bible. I mean, it is a, a discipline that takes, you know, 
up to 15 minutes a day. You know, and so especially to our younger people, but even our older people, you know, do this. You know, we're, we're people of the book. We need to understand, know this book. Someone once told me that, that to uh, start memorizing, you know, if you want to be involved in the ministry, start memorizing the Bible and develop a plan to do it. I mean, over a seven-year period, I, I just remember memorizing so much Scripture. I haven't memorized the, the book of Titus. So that's why I say I read it every day for a week. You know, I, I, you know some of you might even be able to memorize it. It's not a very long book. Um, and you know what? You know, just doing that, and memorizing this word, it puts things inside my heart, inside my mind that still benefits me. Years after I memorized those passages, it's because the word of God will not return void. Amen. It comes back. So that's the first term. That's elder. It's a person of moral character. It's a person of spiritual encouragement. Elders are spiritually mature, and they help us to walk with God. The second term that we'd see here is the term overseer. Look down at verse 7. You see that term overseer. The Greek word that's translated there is, is episkopos. It's where we get the word bishop from. If you look at verses 5 and 7, you'll notice something. He's called an elder in verse 5, a bishop in verse 7, and guess what? It's talking about the same person. You know, these are interchangeable terms when talked about leadership inside the church. Two ways to describe the, the, the same work they do. It's like I'm a husband and I'm a provider. There are different ways of speaking about the same thing. Now, the term episkopos or, or overseer here, it shows how the church leaders have authoritative leadership in the church. They organize, they make decisions on behalf of the congregation. Elders gather together and they help get it organized. They solve doctrinal controversies. They deal with the moral character of the church. They decide to make, how to make Christ known throughout the world. The family and the church, they need men who are willing to step into places like this, places of leadership and responsibility. I mean, it starts with growing in godliness, but it means ultimately having the courage and the sacrifice in order to step in and to serve. We can look down again at verse 9. What's their calling? To give instruction and sound doctrine, to rebuke those who contradict it. It also means that we as a congregation need to listen Reminded of what Hebrews 13.17 says. Hebrews 13.17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. As overseers who, who have demonstrated spiritual maturity, as overseers who, who have some level of authority, you know, these, there's a listening that we give respect because we know that they care we know that they're involved we know there's there's a level of spiritual authority that's given there in the pursuit of god and sometimes they may say things that we're uncomfortable with or challenged by we really need to to look deep inside and, and to consider what what they're saying is is really true is right and is good for us and not just dismiss it on the surface there's a challenge that we have that comes through the role of a of an elder of an overseer. But they're not just disconnected leaders, and we know that. They need to know the people, and that leads to our third description, and our third description comes from 1 Peter 5, verses 1 and 2. And the third term that's there is the term shepherd. The term shepherd. It shows the kind of care that church leaders are to have. The Bible says that the Lord is my shepherd. Jesus himself says, I am the good shepherd. 1 Peter 5.4 calls Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep. 
And if an elder as a shepherd is going, what, what, what an elder as a shepherd knows is how much God loves his people. And he knows it's his responsibility to love them as well and to love them well. Elders should know, feed, lead, protect the church as God cares for his church. So as elders, church leaders then, they are moral and spiritual examples. They're elders, right? As overseers, they, they organize and deploy the church. And as shepherds, they know and they care for God's people. It has all three, three parts there. there. Example, stewardship, and care. Critical for the health of the church. You know, when Jesus died for his church, he set a powerful work in motion. You know, Jesus set and made a people for himself. He made a people of his very own. He shed his blood for them. And he left behind people who will build up his people, his beloved ones, his redeemed, his elect, those who are going to care, those who are going to lead, those who are going to feed, those who are going to protect. He left apostles, apostles, he left apostles, prophets, and he's left the church elders. What a gracious work that God has done in doing that. And I know I benefited from the shepherding of which I've had from elders in this because the elders of this church also give care for my soul. We give care for one another's soul. You know, that's part of that mutuality of multiple elders while we're needed together, to grow together for all that Christ has for us. You know, that's really a demonstration of his ongoing love. It's his work in the history of the church. And in his grace, he has preserved it for his people. Would you be part of his work? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we need leadership. We are finite. We don't know everything. We are sinful. Father, we are prone by ourselves to panic, and we're, panicked to, we're prone to go astray. But you've sent Jesus to be a shepherd of our souls. Thank you, God, for that. And thank you, God, that he has called, equipped, sent elders to continue that work of his love. God, would you raise up more godly leaders from among us? Would you raise up those who are mature in Christ, who are willing to give themselves to the cause of Christ and to give himself to the things that he loves? God, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's close and let's sing together.